This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. I'm Roisin Ingle and you are very welcome to Back to Yours, a podcast where I knock on the doors of some big names to tell the story of their lives through the houses they've lived in. Now, my guest this episode is probably the chattiest woman I know. The bants are very high with this one. It's the Catlin Moran episode. You know her from her newspaper journalism and columns and she became very well known a few years ago with her seminal non-fiction feminist manifesto How to Be a Woman which is both hilarious and world changing. Her subsequent novels were How to Build a Girl and How to Be Famous and of course How to Build a Girl is a new movie starring Beanie Feldstein which just won a prize at the Toronto Film Festival. To set the scene, this was recorded earlier this year in London when there was a gentle smattering of snow across Crouch End but inside Catelyn's house where she lives with her husband, music journalist Pete and her two teenage daughters, it was cosy and warm and full of many, many cushions. Almost as many cushions as the anecdotes about the famous people who've popped around for tea and had a go on the piano. Well, last time we had... um Guy Garvey and Craig Potter from Elbow over we sort of like uh, it got to the sort of dancing and singing time of the evening and I was really trying to obviously I just wanted them to sing songs that I could join along with because I I believe I have a beautiful voice even though it does sound like a goose being clubbed by a wolf Apologies in advance for my snorting and cackling laughter but you try and spend any amount of time with this woman without snorting and cackling not possible I really did try Here it is back to yours with the completely brilliant Catelyn Moran There's a cross stitch. It says wank away the pain. <laughs> cross stitch, wank away the pain. Oh yes, someone said to us, it was great. This is the great thing about like having fans, uh, which I still have to refer to like in inverted commas. Oh yeah, obviously. But, um, yeah, they send me stuff like this. Was another one as well when I did oh, yeah? my gig in Nottingham. This guy had been waiting outside for ages, and he gave me. So I'd appeared on that Saturday breakfast or Saturday kitchen, whatever it's called, one of those programs, yeah. and I'd been on it. And he'd just taken a picture of every frame of me on it. He handed me a whole box. He'd literally, like, photographed me being on television. So I had 24 frames for each second that I'd been on TV. And then he'd taken his four favourite shots from this five-minute appearance on the show. And put them in a lovely frame. So that I would want... Because, of course, what you want when you've been on telly is pictures of you being on telly. Like... Exactly was, what you want. I mean, first of all, I mean, but I love that you have it on your mantelpiece. So, well, it was just so demented. I was yeah. just like, how can I? How can I do anything other than just have it there as a testament to? Because I mean, if you've been on telly, like if you wanted to see yourself on telly, you just watch the clip of you being on telly, which we don't do Obviously, because it's horrendous. I would never watch myself on television. I'm not a lunatic. Anybody who would, I mean, I, I know actors who, yeah, you know, need to sit down and like, you know, hone your performance and understand how you're coming across and stuff. But yeah. I'm not an actor. It's not a performance. No. So you know, all there is is regret if you watch yourself on television. Yeah. Sit there going, that's what I should have said. Oh look, there I am being an absolute idiot. <laughs> oh no, my head did look triangular. It wasn't back combed enough at the back. 
That's always my greatest fear. All I ever check is that my hair looks circular and not triangular. Right. This is like the great terror and pity of my family. We've all genetically got triangular hair. It will naturally dry in a triangle with a pointy <laughs> head and then flaring out like a kind of medieval page boy's hair across the jaw, thus enwidening the face. So all the Morangos task throughout life has always been to enrounden the hair. Enrounden the triangle. Yeah, yeah. detriangulate. Detriangulate. Unrounded. And, un- and then end Both are yes. words. Enrounding uh, is a word. Enrounding and embiggen, which and is, big- yeah, embiggen. <laughs> so listen, tell me about this room because it's really cozy and, and, you know, you work at home. Yes. So it has to be, you have to feel like you really love the place. Is that yeah, I mean, but essentially, like, you know, if, if when you work from home, what you're saying is I, I live in a prison of my own making. Like, if you were in solitary confinement for the rest of your life, you've, you've said, no, I've been in the world, I've met people. That's not for me. I've I've gone out and been to other locations. I've used public transport. That was all not working for me. I choose to wake, work, and then go back to bed, all in a space, no more than 20 feet away from each other. So so my morning commute is simply to go from my bed downstairs into the sofa where I sit. So the sofa is where the magic happens. Yes, the sofa is where the magic happens. So so the last year has changed. For the last 10 years, I would always work in The Guardian on the patio, and I would smoke there, and uh, because I have to smoke outside. And it's always very cold out there. So I would be covered in at least two or three fake fur coats. And in all weathers, like literally out there in the snow with a laptop and a fag that said desperate my nicotine addiction is. And I would I would basically look like a member of the Night's Watch from Game of Thrones. I would be covered in fur rugs and just typing in the snow, just okay. just keeping keeping watch over the words. Let's move around here. You've got some guitars, you've got a lovely yes. doll's house, which I love. It's Thank a beautiful you. one. Yes, so the guitars, my uh, my dear friend, the writer John Niven, who wrote Kill Your Friends, bought me that guitar for my birthday. Even though I can't is, play. Is he the one who gave you the really expensive watch? He gave me a Rolex as well. Yes. It's an amazing yeah, gift. That I only had on my arm once and then yes. I nearly took it. Which I've currently yeah. lost. I don't know where it is. Yeah, I know. Hopefully. You'll, you'll find it. You'll yeah, find I'm it. sure I'll find it. Yeah. But he bought me this very beautiful and very expensive guitar. Um, knowing full well that I don't play the guitar. Would never want to play the guitar. And he bought it me so it's in my house because he plays guitar. So whenever he comes around, he can have a drink and he can play me songs by The Clash or The Manistry Preachers. one of the, the sel- sort of selfish gift. But also a gift to you because you, you can he can play for you. For, for me, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think nice. it's a gift of love. He's saying, I'm confident enough I'm going to be in your life that I'm starting to bring my things and put okay. them in your house. So that does I always have a, feel does comfortable Does he have a drawer of little things? Nibs drawer, yes. Yeah, yeah it's just 6,000 Marlboros. No one ever... <laughs> I've never met anyone in the history of the world that smokes like John Niven. He's basically like a walking cigarette machine. Strangers will go up to him. You can smell it a mile away. You just kind of like, you are the cigarette man, aren't you? Could I have a cigarette? And he'll just open up his coat. Racks of Marlboro. But like, what do you want? Reds or yellows? I've got the American ones. Cigar? He's a walking humidor, that's why I love him. And then the, the <coughs> doll's house are my daughter's doll's houses, and they now don't use them as doll's houses, but they keep secret things in there. And oh. in the second doll's house here, um, we usually have a stereo. My husband just tried to put a record player in every single room in the house. Right. This one, sadly, is away from ending at the moment, but we would normally have a record player in this stereo. And you've got some Muppets. Yes, if you go to America, to FAO Schwartz, um, you can get your own Muppet made of you. So, so you go to a Muppet workhouse. So this is my husband on the left here with the glasses and a slightly perturbed look on his face and curly hair. And that's my daughter there, a blonde Muppet with a preternaturally opened mouth in the way that a Muppet does. And then up there, that's the are. me Muppet, yeah. sort of like messy black hair. Um, and uh, she's where she's got a little rock and roll leather coat. 
And I think if you can possibly have a Muppet made of your family, now if we ever have a disagreement, sort of after five minutes, we'll be like, no, let's let the Muppets sort it out. And we'll all take our Muppets and argue through the Muppets. And that seems to diffuse most Brilliant. heated situations. And all your books, so are these all your music books? Just like music books in the front room, yeah. yeah. It's that someone said once that you could, you, when you walk into a house, you know whether you're going to be friends with someone or not, whether uh. they've got books. So, like, kind of, this is a, this house is made of books, but when I go to someone's house and I'm feeling weird and I'm not getting on with someone, sort of after five minutes, you go, oh, it's because you've got no books here. So what will we talk about? Like kind of where I, I can't see your brain. When you walk into someone's house and you see their books, you're like, oh, I've got an idea what goes on in your head now. Now we can start talking. But a blank wall with no books is like a blank face and a blank mind. And that is a beautiful piano. Ooh. It's a really nice piano. Who plays? My daughter, my youngest daughter, is obsessed with uh, playing the piano. And again, it's always nice when you've got sort of like, so you know, we're lucky enough to every so often have musical heroes come over. So like if um, Tim Minchin came over and played the entire back catalogue of Jesus Christ Superstar on that piano, which is amazing. Amazing for me, not so amazing for him, because obviously I'd drunk enough by that point to be convinced that I could hit that top G over C that Jesus sings in Gethsemane. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He hasn't been back since. That was, it was a piercing note. In many ways, it's still reverberating around in my head. But, you know, um, so he... Um, Who else has played on the Guy piano? Garvey from Elbow, sing songs aplenty, always very beautiful. Our friend Stephen Duffy from The Light at the time is one of our favourite brothers. Neil Finn from Crouch Stephen Tales. Tintin Duffy. Stephen Tintin Duffy, yeah. He will play, it's wonderful, he's like a lovely jukebox, he'll sit and play all of his songs for us. Uh, the last person who was around was Matty Healy from the 1975, who came straight in, sat down at the piano and started playing. And my girls were just standing there going, oh, is this really? They've never really cared about sort of like the other, oh, the other that we've ones had over. Whatever. Yeah, just whatever. But, but yeah, to, seeing Matty Healy from the 1975 walk into your house is quite an extraordinary thing because he's so very beautiful. And he so looks like a rock star. And just seeing something that beautiful and that rock and roll walk into your house is just like, oh, we might need to keep you. Okay. And he was absolutely adorable. He ended up upstairs lying on my daughter's bed, um, just sort of chatting to them, playing his guitar. And um, he'd been talking to them for 10 minutes and he went, this is great because I never really get to talk to my fans. Like kind of, can I take this opportunity to ask you a question? And the girls were like, yeah. And he said, are, are the 1975 cool? I've never seen anyone in a band ask a question like that. I actually had tears in my eyes. I was like, this is, you are so sweet. That's so I hope lovely. they said they were. They, well, they were really stunned. It was awful because they were so shocked because <laughs> they weren't expecting it. There was silence for literally a minute. I listened to back to it on the tape afterwards. And in that time, I think you might have had a slight nervous breakdown. <laughs> then they were like, yeah, no, no, you don't know. Yeah, you are cool. You're really, you're really cool. I love this um, throw. It's very retro. Thank you. Yeah, so it's it's a like, huge, a, how do you describe that? It's again? a huge crocheted throw, crocheted multicoloured, throw, kind yeah. of in like, so it's the kind of crocheted blanket you make up if you have loads of leftover bits of wool and you're like, mm, what am I going to do with this? I can either put it in the bin or make this huge multicoloured rug that's quite clashy. I love this multicoloured rug. It's one of my favourite things. I bought it off eBay for like 20 quid. And then the postage was about 60 because it's so very heavy. Um, but uh, everyone else in my family hates it. So whenever I go away oh, for the weekend, like, like so, so last time I went to Ireland, uh, whenever I go away on tour, I'll come back and that rug will be gone from that sofa and there'll be a different rug on it. And the oh. first thing I do whenever I've been away, put it back, is I, I don't even take my coat off. I leave my suitcase in the front door and I walk in and I go, who's taking the rug? And I go to the charity box and I pull it back out and I put it back on. And then mummy's home. Catelyn, we're going to take it to your sofa now. Okay, so your first house, your first home. Yes, so I was raised uh, in the ghetto, uh, as much as we would have uh, in Britain. Uh, so in Wolverhampton, in a three-bedroom council house, and it was the last house on the street, and it was the last street on the estate. So out the back, it was all fields and countryside. You could see across to Wales. And then at the front, it was there was the 512 bus stop that would take you into town. So it was the perfect mix of, uh, of urban and country. And... 
My father was a man who'd had a very interesting 60s, uh, which had very much formed his mind during extreme experiences. I hope you can read between the lines here. Um, so he was very convinced that the end of the world might come fairly soon. Um, I mean, it was the 80s and a time of nuclear proliferation. So every day he would take us into the garden and point across to Wales, which we could see across the fields, and go, when the bomb drops... You've got a minute to get all your possessions and then we get in the van and we drive. We want to be over the other side of those mountains when the radiation clouds start to form. Um, which is quite a scary thing to be told when you're six. <laughs> but it meant that at all, all, all times when I was walking around the house, I'd make a mental note of where my stuff was. That's where my shoes are. That's where my coat is. That's where my teddy bear is. Like kind of when the bomb drops, I will know where they are. Put them in a carrier bag and off we go. The problem with his plan, although admirable though he was thinking ahead in that in those in that way, uh, was that we the car that we had was a Volkswagen Caravanette whose top speed was probably about forty seven miles an hour when all of us were in it because there were eight children. Um, so I, I doubt that we would have outgunned the nuclear holocaust uh, forty seven miles an hour. We would have died. So. <laughs> we were just going to die. We were all going to die. We were all going to die if the nuclear bomb dropped. I don't know why my father thought we would be exceptional, but that was nonetheless what we were prepared for. So it was a three bedroom council house, and our father always made us very proud to be raised in a council house. He was like, these were the homes that were built for the heroes returning. From the war, Second World War. So he was very, very proud to be in these council houses. And it was, you know, everyone I knew lived on a council house. And then when I started coming down to London when I was 16, because I wrote my first book when I was 15, it was published and I started being interviewed. When you told people from London, Media London, that you were from a council estate, they would presume that you were from the ghetto. Like, kind of, they would presume that there must have been sort of like drug dealers on every street corner and kind of like prostitutes being bummed over a wet mattress in an alleyway and kind of rats fighting each other with a stick. And you were like, no, that's kind of not what most council estates are like. I mean, it was a bit boring. And like the bus was only two buses an hour. They were fairly, you know, it was infrequent travel wise. But um, but no, no, you know, council estates are just lovely, safe places where people raise families. Was it a messy house? Oh, jeez. <laughs> well, I've got eight in my family too, so I'm just, I, yes. I, I, my mum's not listening. She hates when I say it, but like it wasn't, you know, it's hard to keep out. How could it be? Well, I mean, unless, I mean, there just isn't anywhere to put all the stuff, like kind of. I mean, basically, there's a heaping system that you can use. It's, you know, there's not, you know, the luxury of drawers. Like, so we had a chest, we had one of the bedroom had four girls in and we had a chest yeah. of drawers that was like two little drawers and two big drawers underneath it. And that's where all of our clothes had to go. So obviously four children, as we got bigger, but, you know, you, 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 you could fit less and less into it. So, so you just have heaps of clothes and you sort of, and, 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 you know, I think this is why my sister had a massive interest in archaeology from a very early age, because like you just have to remember at what layer... You know, how many inches down are your tights? You took them off on Wednesday, so they're going to be about three inches down underneath the coat and the jumper and the boots. So, so there were just heaps of shit everywhere. Books, my parents, we would... So we, our weekly routine was that we would we'd go to the library every day and get books out, and then we would go to all the good jumble sales at the weekend. And that was where we got all our clothes, all of our nicky-nacky news, our objets d'art. Um, uh, so there was a constant accumulation of very cheap stuff, which would then be put into piles, and that would be ready for us to cram into a van with a nuclear holocaust. Was it could. like, did it ever at Christmas or was there a time of the year when suddenly the piles were, you know, there was a bit of a clear out of the piles or did it just continue on and get more piley? Once a year in the uh, sort of, well, twice a year, we would put away the summer things and bring out the winter things so that everything would be put in very easily terrible black plastic bin bags. And then the ladder would be brought and you'd try and stuff it in the loft by kind of. The thing is, if you're standing, if you've got, especially if you've got a reluctant 10 year old child overseeing this, because all the kids did everything because the grown ups would be looking after the latest baby. So it'd just be like, put the winter clothes away. So you put everything in a bin bag and then you climb to the top of a rickety ladder. You'd be telling your sibling to hold the ladder still. But of course, obviously, they'd be rocking it from side to side as much as possible. Going, hey! You'd be like, whoa, whoa. They'd be like, hey, hey. Uh, and then you'd be at the top of the ladder and then you'd open up the hatch and then you'd have to try and push the bin bag above your head 
through a hole and into a cavity. None of our family have upper body strength. We're, we're essentially built like Tyrannosaurus Rexes. We've got massive quads. It's all in the thighs. That's where our pair is. But upper arm, if I have to put my arm above my head for more than 30 seconds, I get very tetchy. I have no power there. So trying to push a bin bag above your, above your head into a hole and into a loft... I mean, that, that was the, the greatest trauma and pain we ever had. So what, you'd, you'd put away the summer clothes and you'd bring out the winter clothes. When you came to London then and you lived in Camden. Yes. Um, and would you, did you continue the piling? Was yes. Was sort of just another version of... The piling system continued. So I moved down to London on my 18th birthday. By this point, I was a columnist on The Times. I was working as a music journalist for Melody Maker and I'd just been given a TV show on Channel 4 to present. Which now the sentence sounds absolutely absurd. That's not what you get at 18. But I knew nothing else. We'd been home educated. I didn't have any friends. So I had no idea that this was not what 18-year-olds were doing. Um, so, and I knew Camden was the epicentre of everything. It was just pre-Britpop, but that was still where everything was happening. So I had a house, uh, a three-bedroom house in the middle of Camden. Uh, opposite, I, on the first day I went outside to smoke a fag, sat on the doorstep with my dog that I brought down a huge Alsatian to guard me in, in, uh, in London. And I saw Morrissey come out of his house and just walk down the street. And then, and round the corner was Alan Bennett. He just, he was going backwards and forwards on a bicycle. So it went, going from like a very quiet, boring council estate in Wolverhampton to just living in London. I was so near Regent's Park that at night you could hear the lions when they were fucking roaring. So it was like being in the jungle. And then you just see Morrissey going past and you're like, Wow. London is exactly what I thought it would be. There are ensuite lions and Morrissey. Of course, that's what happens when you move to London. And I brought the chaos from Wolverhampton to Madison. Yeah. Moved there and on my 18th birthday, my dad, my dad's birthday present to me was to give me a lift down to London uh, to move me into my new house. And he then charged me for petrol. And then he char- charged me an extra 20%, which as he explained was corkage. <laughs> corkage. Sometimes he'd explain that, that he would charge you a bit extra for wear and tear on the car if you'd had a lift, depending on how much you were taking in it or how much weight He's you put on at that amazing. time. He's quite a character. And uh, so, yeah, I moved down to London and the, the, the piling system continued. I had no hoover, but I had an Alsatian dog. So when we came to summer and the dog molted, there was dog hair everywhere. And the first time I brought around the band Suede, who were friends, they'd been in the pub around the corner of the Good Mix, and they came back to mine for a late night drink. And I'd sort of on the way there, I was like, guys, it is a bit messy in my house. Like, I'm an 18 year old girl. They were like, we've been students. Don't worry about that. Opened the door. This mad dog shot out. Everything was so covered in dog hair that when Brett Anderson sat down on the sofa, when he stood back up again two minutes later, he's, he was wearing cord trousers. He was covered in what were essentially dog hair chaps. He had the legs of a fawn or a mammoth. And he just looked very distressed. And then because he was quite a dandy man, he went, Catelyn, do you have any sellotape? And I was like, what? He wanted to- I've got sellotape. And he wrapped it around his hand and then just palmed all the, that thing that you can do where you take the dog hair off by wrapping sellotape around your hand and tapping it all off. And uh, so, yeah, that was, I revolted rock and roll stars at the age of 18. They were horrified. It was depraved. I had mice. I didn't know how you paid electricity bills because I was 18, so the electricity would frequently get cut off. Then I'd put candles on top of the TV to light the room. And then when the electricity came on, the TV would come on and explode because all the wax had fallen down the back of the television. I remember reading an interview, and it must have been very early. It must have been around that time because the interview came to your house. And Hunter Davis, yeah. It, oh, it was, and it, you were looking for the cheque for yes. something and you didn't know where it was, but it was basically the cheque that was going to pay your rent. Yeah, and it was you a two grand money check. Around. Yeah. No, I didn't know. I mean, I did because we'd because our family didn't have money when we were on benefits. Like, kind of, I didn't know anything about paperwork. I didn't know when I moved down to London at the age of 18 and I was earning money, that 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 you had to pay tax. Because I was the first Miranda to ever earn enough to pay tax. So I didn't know. I'd, I'd heard of income tax, but I presumed, which I still think is logical, that at the point where you were earning enough to pay tax, the government will contact you. Like <laughs> I love that. Well, yeah, they're the ones sense. that want it. Why would I 
go and tell them. Like, kind of, they would... Surely at the time when I'm now grown up enough and rich enough to pay income tax, they would call me. That's would <laughs> be like, common Catelyn, courtesy. it's yeah. time. Yeah, and I'd be like, OK, I'm a woman now. I have earned enough money to pay tax. Tax me. But they didn't. The call never came. So I was like, well, the government obviously thing. This is fine. So I didn't pay any tax for the first three years. And so when I moved in with my husband for the first two years, we had to live off his income while I just banked everything to pay off an absolutely extraordinary tax bill. That was quite sobering. So I'm telling everybody here now, the government will not contact okay. you. You must contact them. That was vital knowledge. How long were you in that and where did you go next? I moved every six months because whenever oh. a landlord would come around and see the house and what I'd done to it, they would kick me out and then I'd move on to the was next one. really bad? Well, I had I had an alsatian. I had I owned one chest of drawers, a laptop, three bin bags full of clothes, um, a lot of ashtrays. Actually, no, I didn't have ashtrays. What I'd done, I invented this thing that I was very proud of. I took a loaf of bread, like a whole loaf, unsliced, and I'd eaten the first slice and then I realised that if you hollowed out the centre, pulled out the spongy bread from the centre... Then you then made an absolutely gigantic ashtray. You could just like you'd hollowed really out the bread, long, long, deep, deep ashtray. Because I'd read in a in a uh, in a book that bread absorbs odor, so I was just like, "This is great. This is going to soak oh. up the fag smell." And that would that would fill for about six months before you had to like empty the bread ashtray and then fill it back up again. So when people came around to my house, they were absolutely they'd be like, you, "You're putting out fags in a loaf of bread. You've got a huge Alsatia that's clearly insane." I don't even remember what I did with the dog. I'd go on tour with the Beastie Boys for like three days in Italy. I don't remember what I was doing with the dog. Like, now I'm like, did I just leave the dog in the house with, like, some pizzas? I didn't buy dog food. I would order pizzas with meatballs on, like, give the meatballs to the dog and, and then just eat the rest of the pizza myself. Like, we're a great team. Like, I was absolutely feral. Like, and looking back now, it's extraordinary. I didn't, when people came around, I didn't know how to buy alcohol. So the only alcohol that I bought was mead, which is, like, the honey-based alcohol that monks make. I'd been to Dublin to interview the Boo Radleys and they'd got duty-free mead at the airport on the way back. I was like, Wow! Alcohol. When grown-ups come around to the house, they want booze. Get this mead. <laughs> I lost the bottle top in the first day, so it got filled with flies. Just like, insects flew into the mead and lived in the bottle of mead. So whenever people came around and I would go, would you like a drink? And they'd say yes. I'd have to get a cup. I didn't have glasses, so I'd get a mug. Then I'd put a sieve over the mug. <laughs> and then I'd pour the mead through the sieve to sieve out the insects before handing them this warm mead. And go, this is mead. It's a honey-based monk drink. And they'd be like, what? Why can't you just have beer? Why are you so weird? <laughs> But I did not know how to be a grown-up. I was a child. I was like Pippi Longstocking, this mad feral child. And how long did the feral the feral years go on Well, to? my husband would say. Like, They're still going on. Well, I, well, I moved in with him when I was 19. <laughs> okay. And my, my trousseau, such as it was, when I moved into his, his, very, his very lovely masonette in Tufnell Park, was three bin bags full of clothes, um, which had ashtrays and dirty crockery mixed in with the clothes. Like, literally full ashtrays. That's how I'd packed. It's how I'd always packed. You just put everything in a bin bag. No suitcases, no luggage, monogrammed Louis Vuitton case, no. An already torn bin bag with a full ashtray, two cups and some knickers. And just the day I moved all my stuff into his house, I just remember him staring at it in the kitchen, just kind of like, clearly doing the maths in his head, like, well, the sex is good, and the, the bants are high, but she comes with literal baggage. Like, this is... Escape the Ordinary with Green and Blacks, sponsor of Back to Yours. Made with the finest ingredients and ethically sourced cocoa. Discover your favourite flavour from the range, which includes 70% cocoa, roasted almond, salted caramel, sea salt and mint. Living with someone who clearly is very different, did that impact on you? Did that kind of 
change the way you were. Yeah, I mean, I didn't want to make him look so very sad. Like, that's how you learn to sort of, like, tame yourself. Um, he would just come home, because I worked from home, and he had a proper job at Time Out magazine in London. Um, so he'd go out, and when he'd come back, like, kind of... Because I was just blind to mess, having been raised in filth and then continued to live in filth. I just literally didn't see it. But when he'd come home and see, like, kind of ashtrays everywhere and sort of, like, dirty crockery and pants everywhere, and it would make him sad, I'd be like, hang on, I are learn. Human are not like this. Normal people not do. I learn. It's like when you watch those things of like apes being taught sign language and the gorilla's just really staring at Diane Fossey going, I think I get it. Not knickers in sync. I'd been living there for about three weeks and uh, there was one morning where I just sort of spent most of the time in bed and um, he came back from work and looked by the side of the bed and my, I'd had porridge for breakfast and then I'd started to menstruate, as will happen every month. And I just sort of, when the tampon had got full and I was just in bed, I, and I couldn't be bothered to get out of bed, I'd just simply taken the tampon out and put it in the bowl of porridge, which was by the side of the bed. So he just found this full bowl of porridge with a bloody tampon in it. And he was just like, he just looked at me and I was like, OK, I'm going to have to shape up now. This is time for the makeover. <laughs> Tampons must go in the toilet. I'm learning. <laughs> I'm so I've horrified you. I know I was going to say. Because like... Not those stories, okay? No, 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 too. Because I'm bad. <laughs> There's worse. No, than I'm bad, and I'm relating to a lot of it. And then it just went to another level that even I cannot go with you there. You know what? I mean, it's a sentence I hear so many times. Like I was with you up until the point, and now you're on your own, sweet freak. Bon voyage. So how did so you started to become more normal? Yes, <laughs> and uh, just. Things like furniture, I suppose, yes. wardrobes, hanging things yeah. up and stuff. Well, I literally bought that. a wardrobe. I was like, but it was so exciting to me because, like, obviously, I'd always been poor when we were in Wolverhampton and had no money. Then when I moved down to London, I was just spending all my money on mead and sort of alcohol and stuff. And then when I moved in with Pete and, like, and then for three weeks I had to pay off the tax bill so I had no money. Then when I finally paid off the tax bill, Pete would say things like, well, your clothes have been on the floor for three years now. Why don't we buy a wardrobe? And I'd be like, oh, buying a furniture? <laughs> Where does one even do such a thing? Do we look in a skip? He'd be like, no, no, we'll go to this lovely shop around the corner and buy a wardrobe. I was like, oh, this is incredible. And that was when I finally got the bug of being able to improve your life. I'd never seen the cause and effect that you could earn ah, the money okay. and you would have the money. Right. And instead of spending in a bar or losing a check on the floor, if you kept the money, having you paid your tax on it, you could start buying things and making your life nice. And it was genuinely mind-blowing because like, the thing about being very, very poor and on benefits and being raised by chaotic parents is nothing ever changes, nothing ever improves. Like, if the front door gets broken, it'll just stay broken for the next five years. If you lose a shoe, then you just hop. Like, kind of like nothing ever improves, nothing ever changes. So this idea that you can go, I identify a problem of clothes on floor, I will solve with purchase of wardrobe was genuinely mind-blowing to me. So that was when I started getting into... I mean, it's, I don't want to put you in a corner, but I, I hope you would agree this is a very lovely house. It's a very lovely house, and I'm not just saying that. You walk Good. in and it's just a beautiful, cosy, oh. colourful, lovely space. I can Thank see you. that thing that you said you need to... You know, you're trapped, you're in your prison. Yes. Of your own My making. lovely, lovely prison. Yeah, it's yes. a lovely, lovely prison. You've a lot of cushions. Yes. Like, too many. I, too I do, many? I do keep trying to sort of like rationalise them down. My daughter <clears throat> passed her driving test uh, about six months ago and we got her a car. And uh, for, I, it's that thing of being like a teenager and thinking, oh, you can change things now. I've got a car. Where will I go? The first place she went was Ikea. And she just bought loads of cushions. It's that kind of, I think you think that's an adult thing to do. It would be too serious a purchase to go and buy a wardrobe or a table. But like, you can buy cushions. So we're, we're currently, you are. <laughs> draw a picture for the you tr- now. It's like I'm, the Triffids of cushions. Or yes, I'm in a nest of like, of love. And they're all delightful cushions. Yeah. But I mean, there isn't much that much room on the sofa. I am, I've got one buttock sort of hanging over the edge of this sofa. There's not really... 
So tell me about this house then. So when you were kind of, this was, you knew this was going to be your home. Yes. Had you got kids by that stage or? Yes, I'd got, we'd, uh, I'd given birth six weeks before. We were living in a masonette in Tufnell Park. So kind of like, which was very lovely, but we didn't have a garden, like kind of, and it was right on Holloway Road. And someone had just got killed in McDonald's. Someone got stabbed in McDonald's at eight o'clock in the morning. And we were like, maybe we don't want to live on Holloway Road anymore. Um, so we just we wanted you know everyone wants the classic house you want a square house with a door in the middle and windows on either is side that what, and a lovely is that garden. what it was because I'm just wondering you know growing up with the in the council house yes. obviously very different to this house yes. but did you have like an almost a fantasy of this is what a normal person absolutely lives I in. wanted a totally normal house I <laughs> wanted a lovely house with a lovely garden and we'd seen this one online and I saw the picture of the garden and there was an apple tree right in the middle of the lawn and we'd always had an apple tree in our garden at home and I was like that house that's that's a normal house where a lovely lady would live that, I can become that house will make me a better person it's very expensive but it, you know it, the self-improvement costs I, I, it was way beyond what we could afford but we just looked at it and were like okay we'll just simply have to earn more money so we can live in the lovely normal house because I won't be the true Truly great person I can be until I've purchased this very lovely house. This okay. house will make me a better person. Uh, and that was the speech I gave Pete when we took a mortgage that nearly killed us. I was like, it will make me a better person. <laughs> and it's ha- either this or therapy. And how we can live it, in the house. How has it made you a better person? It has made me better. Well, just because, just things like being able to, you know, the first time I could like go out in the garden and peg out some washing, like kind of when a house, because a house should be a machine that will fit around you and it should facilitate your everyday and kind of like sort of fit in with your schedule. And obviously it takes time to mould a house in that way. But like, you know, the beauty of when you finally worked at a house that means you wake up, you know, your glass of water is on your beautiful bedside table your duvet gives you pleasure to look at it your slippers are right by the bed you put your feet on the lovely fluffy rug that makes you feel comforted you walk into the bathroom your contact lenses are there and there's your makeup and there's your hair and it's all just in there you just basically sort of walk in a straight line through the house with the kind of house throwing clothes and contact lenses and makeup Mm. and shoes on you and then it takes you out the door and you're not having to scrabble around through piles of stuff so so my obsession has been making sure that there's a place for everything and this christmas the last place that i hadn't done since we moved in been in 16 years was the basement it was just again it was piles of stuff and so my Christmas present was saying to Pete, don't buy me a present, but just spend three days helping me clean out the basement and we can finally put line out and put shelves in there and put everything in the right place. And he was like, you mad bitch. I just hoped you'd ask me for a handbag, but yeah, okay. So <laughs> so that was how we spent our Christmas, just taking everything out of the basement. And now what is the basement? What's the vibe of it? Oh, it's achingly orderly. So it's got, I mean, it's, you know, I, you know, from going from the chaos of my childhood, I'm just so in the opposite direction. So we have Are shelves. Are you like Marie Kondo? Oh, yes, I've condo, yes. Have you condo? Oh, yeah, yeah, many, I do two, three times a year. I don't know why she's like, do it once. I'm <laughs> constantly... <laughs> I am the thrower away. I love to throw away stuff. So the basement is like shelves and now written on the shelves, it'll say camping gear, roll mats, uh, inflatable tents, uh, inflatable pillows, camping stove, uh, and then the sort of shelf underneath it, snow things, sledges, You've gone so far away from yourself. I love it. (laughs) But again, as I was doing it, I found myself thinking everything is now so orderly with all the camping gear and everything in the basement that if there was the five-minute warning and they dropped a nuclear bomb... I could get everything together in this house and be out the door in five minutes. That's still the training I've got in my so head. So in a weird way, it's, it's also compatible with all of that. Yeah, the training is always there. Like, kind of like, always be ready for a nuclear bomb. So you live here with Pete, your husband. Yes. And your two daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And it works for all of you, the house, I presume, because Pete's a big music head. Yes. And d- didn't you get lots of space for his al- all his albums? He, he has a well? whole room. Does he? Which, yeah. Is that his, like, the man cave, this, sort of? Yes, except he's he's his collection is so out. So he's got about 60,000 records, we think. And so he's had to, he put shelving in, and then he had to invent a new system, which I keep telling to patent, because other people who have too many records, as it's technically referred to, uh, would also like this, where he's got a second row of shelving in front of it that can slide backwards and forwards on an ingenious kind of mechanism. Uh-huh. So he's Did got he two layers. That? Yes, he invented it. It's quite extraordinary. Uh, I mean, the, the it's other a niche is, thing, though, people with too many, too, like 60,000. Especially records. him and Bob Stanley from St. Etienne have that many records. No one else normal does. And I'm glad they're friends and they can talk about it together. But I, my answer is always it's on Spotify. You don't need to own physical things. It's a dust hazard. And when they're piled up in the hallway, they snag my tights. So. But so he's got it all in his room, and that's sort of like that's his, his record room. Although the records will spread across the house, like in the playroom. Sort of, I opened up the doll's house a couple of weeks ago, and he'd put a record player in there, just like what? This is no one's no no. <laughs> and what's your favourite room, or where's the place that you feel like oh, you curl up? I mean, this is obviously a very curly the curl up place, area. Yeah. So. so the front room is all like dark blue walls, yeah. a huge red velvet sofa. Um, I bought a sofa that was as much like a bed as possible, so it's kind of in a T-shape. So, so Indian I said said that once in an article about making your sofas like beds. Yes, That's the thing to you do. totally yeah. should. Yeah. Like kind of like you know why why go up to your bedroom when you could have a bedroom and a front room in the front room if you if you've got the right sofa. So so yeah, we spend most of our time right in the front room. I mean, I've really I mean basically where you're sitting now on the sofa. That's ninety eight percent of my life. I get up in the morning, I do my yoga in front of the sofa on that rug for an hour. Then I sit on the sofa and I write until the kids come home at four o'clock. And then we sit on the sofa and watch RuPaul's Drag Race and then I go to bed. (laughs) And tell us about your bedroom. The bedroom is... I I feel such satisfaction uh, with my bedroom. So we... Four years ago, we uh, extended into the loft and the we paid for the loft extension which is insanely expensive I, it still staggers me how much it would cost to, to do building work especially in london but that the we paid for the loft entirely from the profits of how to build a girl the book and then the tour i did around how to build that. a loft how to build a loft. i do think that every time because like that tour was that was i did a stand-up tour i don't know why i was going kind of like after um how to be a woman i did go a little bit and you know when you get a bit famous and you get some attention it's quite difficult to get your head around because people know who you are it's kind of like being paranoid schizophrenic and i don't say that lightly like kind of like the whole thing about having paranoid schizophrenia is you think people are talking about you and if you are famous people are talking about you you will go down the street and you see people talking about you You go on the internet and people are talking about you. it's quite a difficult thing to get your head around and in the midst of this insanity for for some reason i decided the next publicity tour that i would do rather than sitting on stage and doing q a's like you and i do now that I would do a stand-up tour. I would go on stage for 90 minutes with an interval and no notes and I would just do a stand-up routine about being a woman. And I did it and it worked really well and I really enjoyed it. I got really high off the back of it. It was really... So, I always wanted to be a stand-up comedian and it was a massive fulfilment of a, of a dream. But it was also intensely nerve-wracking because I'd never done it ever before. I did one tryout gig in a pub around the corner in Crouch End in front of 30 people and then the next time I went on stage for 90 minutes without any notes on my own, I was in front of 1,800 people in the town hall in Leeds. And uh, and so I did go a little bit... It sort of it really churned my nerves, that tour. Uh, but the money that I earned from that paid for the loft. So every time I go into my bedroom in the loft... So the bedroom is in the loft? Yes, yeah, so me and Pete have the entire top story for us. So are you going to be here forever then? Is this like... Do you yes. think you'd be a downsizy person eventually to go to... No, well, what I really do want to do as I get older, like kind of like I'm sort of feeling my rock and roll days are leaving me behind. I've kind of given up drinking now. and like, Give sort it, of like Sorry, hold on a second. Hold yes. the phone. <laughs> I'm, <gonna> say, I'm just... <laughs> sorry. 
Well, it sounded weird. But by, okay, let me rationalise that. What I mean is, last night I went to a party and I didn't drink, and that's the first time I've ever done it. So in my head, I've now completely given it up, and that's a part of the thing from the past. But how like, did that feel? It was actually I, I I've never craved alcohol. We never drink alcohol in the house. We don't have a glass of wine with a meal. Like kind of like I've never sort of like, we don't drink that much at all. My husband doesn't drink at all. But when I go out, I go out and once I start drinking I don't stop and you can kind of get away with that in your 20s or 30s but like now in my 40s like if, you, if you're there to the dawn the hangover the next day is just extraordinary and also I, I can say this to you on this podcast but like if you drink in I, I, I see that as a very Celtic way of drinking like the Scots and the Welsh and the Irish that I know you, you, you would never occur to you to, to say anything other than do you want another pint you would never say are you going home it's just like no you are out in London, it's not like that. No one else is on the voyage. You don't get on the booze boat and sail it across the seas. So if I go to Ireland, it feels fine and I'm enjoying it. But here, you know, you get to four in the morning, you start doing your big speeches or talking about why you love someone or talking about your plans for the future and stuff. And you realise that everybody else has just had one and a half drinks and is staring at you. And you're like, I mean, I can't. <laughs> no, my people aren't here. They don't get my drink vibe, man. So so if I'm in London, there's not really any point in starting to drink because no one does it properly. They just... They just drink it to feel just slightly cheerful. And it's like, no, that's not how we understand alcohol to be. It's a rocket that you fire into the sun. <laughs> so I, so by, when I say okay. given up drinking, I've given up drinking in London. Next time in I London. come to Dublin. But when you come to yes, Dublin, I'm, you're going to be drinking cider, please. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I know. I was a bit sorry, worried You looked a bit scared, second. though. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've given up English drinking, <laughs> okay. but I continue Irish drinking. Um, when you do travel, because you do a bit, I know, I mean, you're often, like you say, here, but you do yes. go out here and there. So when you go away, is there things you bring with you to make you feel at home? Is there a sense of, I have to have this with me because that will make me feel, you know. Yeah, I'm just about to give you the most hateful and wanky list ever. Like, everything about this will make people want to kill me. So it's literally the world's most middle class things. I have a cashmere pashmina, <laughs> which you should add as a caveat. I've never learned how to care for properly. The first time I put it in the wash, it shrank down to half the size and it's a lot more rigid than I think expensive cashmere should be. And secondly, the moths have really, they've announced their presence in it. So it's fairly holy. It does look like I've, I've stabbed out quite a few fags in it. But if you're travelling, just being able to wrap that around your head gives you like a little bit of a privacy booth. Like kind of like if you're reading a book and you're crying, like you can wrap the cashmere, the cashmere, cashmere around your head and cry into the cashmere. And crying into cashmere always makes it feel better. Um, and I take a tiny diptyque candle with me that oh. I will light in a hotel room. Like I just P. Love, Diddy. I love smells. I like kind of like I'm constantly burning incense and kind of I love because we I grew up in a house that just literally stank of urine. Like kind of like everybody in that house did not put their urine where they should have. Um, so I love I love a good smell now. So I'll take a candle. Uh, yeah, a good headphones, a notebook to write in. Uh, that's usually about it. Always make sure I've got books. That's ninety percent of my packing is. And I, I I tried it with Kindles and it doesn't work. I need a book. Because when you've got a book in front of your face, that gives you privacy as well. Like kind of like you've opened a little privacy screen around you. That's kind of like that's your world. Whereas so on a Kindle, you look more approachable. And are you um, at home in nature? Are there places outside, outdoors that you go? That was what I was going to continue saying. But then we started talking about drinking. So, yes, as I get healthier, <laughs> a wink. Um, <laughs> I like the wink. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, older, yeah. but like the last couple of years, because like uh, you know, I, I can't take drugs and I can't really drink anymore and stuff, and so I'm just getting into tr other ways of getting high. Okay, so yoga makes me incredibly high, and swimming in cold water makes me very high. So from where we live now in Crouch End, it's about if I get on the bus and then walk, it can in about sort of like half an hour, forty minutes, I can get to the ladies' ponds on Hampstead Heath, yeah. and they are 
so beautiful like swimming in there just a huge sort of like limpid sort of brown pond and it's the thing about swimming outdoors in cold water is it's not a game for young girls like all my life i thought if you were in a swimming costume then you you know that's then you are in an arena where young girls will win they are beautiful they are firmly fleshed you know so thin skinny girls that's that's here it's a place where you are fucked if you're a pretty skinny girl in a bikini. You need to be a doughty matron with some fucking ham on your ass in order to be able to tolerate that cold water. So you don't see any of the pretty young girls in bikinis. It's all big, sturdy matrons, blue stockings, high court judges, overweight authors. And you we're all in our sort of one pieces, jumping in this muddy water, which is incredibly cold, and then just swimming and getting this buzz. And you see like the young girls kind of like, they'll sort of, they'll get in and they'll scream about how cold it is. And all the old women are just like, don't be silly, it's just cold water. Good for you. It's bracing. <laughs> we get to be matronly and look down upon them because they're what is powerful everywhere else to be very skinny and look beautiful in a bikini does not work in cold, muddy water. I have to ask you about uh, domestic martyrdom. Because yes. you've written recently about all the things that you do or notice, including the rug, it sounds like, the crochet yes. rug, that you notice in the house, that other the other three people who live in this house don't seem to notice. Yeah. Tell us about that, because I think a lot of people will relate. I know. There's things that you need to do, and no one else gets why it's really important. Well, the thing is, it's your own ridiculous standards, because like my yeah. husband does more than half of the housework. Like He does all the shopping, he does more than half of the cooking. He, you know, I still see it beneath myself to tidy up a kitchen I'm just kind of I just don't really I'm like what do I get out of this I, I oh I'm just I'm where this isn't working for I'm me I'm gonna I hope I have to get my boyfriend to listen to this that's exactly my attitude yeah. what is wrong with us though and I mean, we'll just have to terrible. do it again tomorrow like kind of like this is it's some, so where's this going like where what's the out on this what's the button like kind of I'm not getting closure on this kitchen thing it just keeps happening why are we doing this you have just explained yeah. it I love it go on <laughs> so it's not that so it's not that I'm a domestic no. martyr in the way that so many women are. So many women and do have the sort of the, the main burden of, of domesticity. It's just there are a series of things that only I see in the house. Like, for instance, side lighting. Like, kind of like I have spent 15 years making sure that there is beautiful, delicious, warm pools of side lighting, beautiful lamps and beautiful spotlights on sort of like crucial areas all over the house so that everybody is cast in a flattering light when they walk, walk in a room and it has a more convivial atmosphere. Because for me, if I walk in a room and there's a single overhead lamp, particularly with an unguarded bulb with its sort of bright green death autopsy room light sort of in a room. I'm not going to be chatty. I look really old. This is a bad place for me. Uh. <laughs> so I made sure there's beautiful lamps everywhere. So when I walk in a room, it takes 10 minutes to turn on all the lamps and it makes it look beautiful. But if I'm out and I come back and it's got dark and my children or my husband have put the lighting on in the house, they won't have put on the lovely lamps. They've just turned on the big light in the middle of the room, which is the bad light. They don't see it. Simply, we've got wooden worktops in the kitchen, which I would recommend to anybody now if they're thinking of doing the kitchen. Don't get wooden worktops in your kitchen. I am from your future. No. Get something solid. Because, as as as, as we all know, and I should have known when I was buying them, water on wood is bad. We all saw the Mary Rose being sort of hauled out of the depths of the sea in Portsmouth Harbour in 1986. We saw how rotten that old boat was, right? So water, wood, uh. But the wooden worktops in the kitchen, no one else sees but me that they are becoming, they need to be oiled every every six weeks. It's like having a fucking newborn baby. Never buy a wooden worktop. Oh my God, they're so needy. They're so thirsty for oil. Like every six weeks you have to take everything off and make sure it's dry and put the oil in. I'm the only person who ever sees that. The dog, which you can see now lying in front of you, it's a very pleasant oh, dog. Um, but it's, it, it is a little bit chubby for its size. It is like kind of, we know that it is slightly overweight and that because it's, it just begs for food and stuff. So I will be Googling raw food dog dogs like red pepper carrot dogs question mark to see if there's any way that we can bring more variety carrot into the dog's dogs. food yeah I love the sound of a carrot can dog you? 
But it's weird what would kill a dog. And I think this is only a very recent development. And I do get a bit paranoid conspiracy theory about this. I'm pretty sure nothing would kill a dog in the 80s. We gave our dogs everything. That kind of... Uh, now, they're like, if, if a dog eats a raisin, it will die. If a dog eats chocolate, it will die. Yeah. That wasn't a thing in the 80s. What's happened? When did dogs suddenly start dying of chocolate? Like, kind of, what is... That's backwards evolution. How are they becoming more fragile? Like, meh. So there's all these sort of tasks The dishwasher the is another one. Dishwasher. Things like maintenance, booking. I mean, well, me and my husband argue about dishwashers all the time because you do not put non-stick pans and sharp chopping knives in a dishwasher. If you put a sharp knife in a dishwasher, it gets bluntened. It like kind of there's a thing that happens. Yeah. Embluntened. Yeah. It will become enslaved of its sharpness. <laughs> it will not be bigly sharp. It will be smallly sharp. Similarly, a non-stick pan in a, in a dishwasher. You're asking for trouble. The non-stick coating, which is the very thing you've paid extra money for, will be scoured from its surface, and it will be a stick pan. You're turning it into a stick pan. Don't do this. A stick pan. <laughs> I don't. It just doesn't get. And also, if you put a huge pan in the dishwasher, it takes up three quarters of the room. How long does it take you to wash up a pan? Hang on, I'm going to mime it now. Oh, I've put some water in the pan. One, two, three. I've got my brush in my... Swirl, 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 scrub, 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 chip that bit off. Bang, I'm done. There, that took 30 seconds. Put it in the dishwasher. It's a three-hour cycle, and it's taken up the room that you could fill with 20 plates and 30 cups, which are boring to wash up. I refuse to wash up a cup. It's but, just... There's nothing in it for but me. But similarly, are the things that Pete notices and does that you absolutely don't care He's about? noticed that I put my moon cup which is a form of sanitary protection. Are you protection. still using a moon cup? Yes. Yeah, Even after the whole thing that happened in Richard Curtis's house. Yes. Catelyn yes. used a moon cup and went to Richard Curtis's house and got blood everywhere. Yeah. Like I, blood on the walls. They were, you were in the guest house of, of Richard Curtis. A really Curtis's. beautiful white guest house. Their, yeah. their house is so very tasteful and so very beautiful and, and all white and so pretty and so so gorgeous and done it in a beautiful, relaxing New England vibe, which I then turned into the set of Carrie by having a terrible accident with my moon cup. So you're still on the moon cup thing. I thought that would have been the end of the moon cup for you. Well, I just tried to the environmentally friendly thing, isn't it? And like kind of like everybody else, we watched that The Blue Planet 2 and David Attenborough and just like the sort of like the the plastics thing. You know, once you've watched a whale being choked to death on a plastic bag that really does look like one that you are chucking in the bin. I just said, it's it's amazing. This is one of the reasons that I love culture and, you know, I'm into TV and I'm into books and stuff because the right thing at the right time can change people, literally rewire your brain the way you think. Previously, if I was using, you know, a plastic bottle... I wouldn't see it for what it was. You'd just like, you know, you'd be out, you'd get a drink, you'd drink the plastic bottle, you'd sort of chuck it in the bin. Now when I look at it, I'm like, this is an astonishing piece of engineering. Like kind of like this this has taken so much effort and time and I'm just literally gonna use it for 30 seconds to throw it away. This is crazy. Like sort of I had a spray oral spray of vitamin D and I was looking at how complex the machinery of was that to have like a you know, the spray machinery is quite complex and I use it for three minutes and throw it away again. This is crazy. So we're trying to be really, really environmentally friendly. Which I find I thought I would find boring, but it's actually quite a challenge to kind of you know, work your way around <clears> these things. You mentioned a few people coming to play music here, well known people. Yes. What's the maddest, kind of craziest thing that's happened in this house? If you were to think back to I'm, I presume were you a party house or were you not? Yeah, when the kids were young, we had we used to throw really big parties that would sort of last two days when the kids were really little I look back now and I'm like why did we do that the kids were really little but I think it was because the kids were really yeah, little it was so astonishingly bored it was <laughs> yeah. all a shit show anyway so it didn't really matter if you bring another 50 people in they're all drunk it's not any less chaotic than it is with just two children so so we throw huge parties and it was a really lovely summer we sort of like we put we put fairy lights everywhere we sort of like had a barbecue going there's music everywhere and we put loads of mattresses out in the garden so people could sort of sit around and talk and bunting and flags and stuff I won't say who it is, but there was a very famous children's TV presenter from CBeebies who came over, got very, very stoned and then fell asleep in the garden. We finally went to bed about five in the morning, came back down at 10 and he was asleep underneath the apple tree on a mattress, just kind of still with a spliff in one hand and a glass of whiskey in the other. And the kids came out. 
and oh, saw him there. The CBeebies the guy CBBC, who they were totally to be watching. On... Yeah, they, who they saw every day on TV. And they were just like, what's he doing, mummy? We were like, he's just a bit sleepy. It's fine. Don't worry about that. Well, last time we had um, Guy Garvey and Craig Potter from Elbow over, we sort of like, uh, it got to the sort of dancing and singing time of the evening. And I was really trying to, obviously, I just wanted them to sing songs that I could join along with because I, I believe that I have a beautiful voice, even though it does sound like a goose being clubbed by a wolf. Um, and uh, and the only songs they will sing along to is the back catalogue of Queen. So we went through the entire back catalogue of Queen and just started dancing. And at one point we were doing a dance routine where we all had to hit each other with wooden spoons. It was just, that seemed to make sense at the time. And uh, we were all hitting each other so hard with these wooden spoons that uh, the one that I was using on Garv broke. And... <laughs> And it was one of those things where you sort of go to bed going, well, that was all absolute. Of course we were seeing the entire back catalogue of me while hitting each other with wooden spoons. And I sort of come down in the morning. You know, you sort of forgotten what happened the night before. And you come down, you just see broken wooden spoon on the floor. You're like, hang on. How did that happen? Thanks very much to Catlin Moran and I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I'm Roisin Ingle and remember to subscribe to Back to Yours wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like what you hear, please give us a review on iTunes and tell all your friends about this podcast. Next time, my guest on Back to Yours is Michael Harding. The motorhome to some people in Ireland would be like a kind of a, a caravan with an engine in it. And they like the Laura Ashley old frills and sofas and things. This is strictly East European. It will get you, they tell me, to Minsk and back in minus 40.